0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Feed Learning People Podcast, a podcast where fellow humans share their vulnerable moments and how they navigated sticky situations throughout their careers. We've all been there, so let's learn from each other. My name is Jesse, and today I'm here with Aaron O'Connor. So, thank you so much for joining in in this conversation on the People Podcast. Um, This is gonna be the last episode for this season because I'm gonna be going out on maternity leave, as you know, and uh, I think it's fitting for you to be the last person of the season because you no longer work at the moment, right? You're retired. That's right. So I think that's everyone's aspirational career goal. So I would love to explore that side post-career as well. So let's go ahead and get straight to it. Uh, can you scan your resume starting from wherever you think is pertinent to where you are today?
1: Well, I spent most of my career in the same industry but in different fields, and it really comes down to two parts. My first part was as working in human resources in healthcare, a good part of that as a chief human resources officer in a hospital and healthcare system, and then the second part of my career was in consulting, still consulting to the healthcare industry, Um, and part of the last, like the last part of that was owning my own business and ultimately selling it to another firm. So it kind of split right in the middle. I was an employee of a hospital and healthcare system, acting as chief HR officer, and then I was a consultant and a business owner in the second half of my career.
0: So you did a lot in HR and in benefits a lot. Uh, Why did you decide to go into that field?
1: Well, originally in human resources, um, I went to undergrad for industrial and labor relations, and that was inspired by my dad. He was a union official at his local union um, in my hometown, and he was the recording secretary on the negotiating committee. So he used to have these giant ledger books where he would take notes in his beautiful handwriting, and I just loved looking at them and reading and talking about it with him and A friend of my brother's had gone, my older brother had gone to Cornell's ILR program, and it was Mm -hmm. different. It wasn't like what everybody else was doing, which I always aspired to be different when I was young. (laughs) So I was like, okay, that sounds great. And so I went into it with the idea of I'd actually go work on the labor side, but Mm -hmm. labor jobs just didn't pay very well, and I had student debt, so I ended up (laughs) working in management. But I always wanted to work in a field um, in an industry that had labor, and I, but I also wanted to work in New York City. Well, there's not much manufacturing, which is primarily where you find labor. Um, so it was really healthcare or hospitality, and I started in hospitality, lasted about ten months, hated it, mm-hmm. and then I found my calling in the in the healthcare industry and have stuck with that ever since.
0: Why do you think HR gets a bad rep? Is it because? Um... You know, there's some lack of strategic business partnership and just focusing on the admin side, the personnel management side, like the old school way of things.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I, of course, it depends on um, every organization is different. Some some organizations pigeonhole HR into that role and don't let them be strategic partners. And I think an HR mm-hmm. professional has to be careful about you know selecting the company that aligns with their Personal interests and their career ambitions. So I think some organizations just want H R to be an administrative function. I think Mm -hmm. the bad rap comes because H R is viewed as a cost center. Like Mm there, for most organizations, Mm -hmm. you're not adding revenue to the organization. You're not driving sales. You're not driving customer service. But that's a fallacy. Uh, I think because H R has the ability to really shape the experience of the workforce, right, to help to make it a place where people want to come, people want to stay, people want to grow and learn and innovate. But HR can't do that alone. And I think sometimes the view is like, why can't HR make this a better place to work? Uh, HR isn't managing the employees day to day. And when I mention communication, most people aren't talking about top down communication, they're not talking about getting more communication from the senior executive team. They're talking Mm -hmm. about communication from their own direct manager, things that matter Mm -hmm. to them doing their job on a day to day basis. But I think, you know, the bad rap is sometimes because HR is seen as the police person of the organization. Absolutely. Like the worst thing in the world you could ask me was to have that conversation for you with your employee about how bad they smell.
0: do you have that conversation? Because I get uh, asked that a lot. Like, how do you have the conversation that someone
1: smells? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you try to help the manager have the conversation
0: with okay. that person. Yeah. Let me role play uh-huh.
1: with you. Let me, you know, uh-huh. let me anticipate what the response is going to be. But it's gonna, yeah. it's going to be a difficult conversation that nobody wants to have. And you know, yeah. understanding that the person, person sitting across from you is going to be probably terribly embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Um, or in denial or tell you they don't care. I mean, you have to mm-hmm. sort of like anticipate all the responses.
0: And and it seems like uh, like HR, of course, should not be giving that feedback to the employees. It's the manager's role. Right. And it's HR's job to coach the managers on how to give that critical feedback. So... Um, HR definitely plays an important role in, in coaching and advising the managers, but they also play an important role in like protecting the organization yes. as well. So how, how do you find the balance between protecting the employees in the organization, but also protecting the organization?
1: Yeah, that is one of the most difficult roles I think HR plays, because mm-hmm. you do report to an executive, and that executive has the power to hire and fire you, right? So... And ultimately, to protect the organization and any fiduciary responsibility as an officer of the corporation, you are responsible to protect the organization. And, you know, that is part of your role. So but what are you protecting the organization from its own like inability to do the right thing by employees? It's, you know, to protect itself from breaking the law
0: Mm-hmm. To, A bit of risk management.
1: It, it's, yeah. it is uh-huh. risk management, but at the same time, you know, you've got – I've had the experience of having employees make false claims. You know, mm-hmm. not every claim that gets made by an employee is truth. And often it could be employees who feel, you know, they, the potential of job loss at, you know, at bay and they're trying to either slow down or stop from getting fired – um, mm-hmm. So it is, it's a real balance. But at the end of the day, you have to know that you are balancing those things. You can't just go into it thinking, I am only going to advocate for the employee. I'm only going to advocate for the employer. And yeah. know what your employer's position on things are, right? So yeah. I worked for one organization, and we call them, you know, the hawk and the dove. The hawk was like, I'm gonna fight everything that comes in. I don't care about bad press. Employees don't always, you know, tell the truth. We'll rather pay a lawyer than pay out a settlement on something.
0: Uh-huh. uh-huh. And then
1: I went to work for a dove organization that was like, the last thing we want is to see our name in the paper. We'll we will pay money to people to just go away. Both of them had bad bad outcomes ultimately if you didn't get the balance right.
2: Mm-hmm. If
1: there were, you know, people who didn't have legitimate claims and you paid them to go to go away, people found out about that. On the other hand, if, you know, you did have something that was wrong in the organization on both sides, you couldn't fix it because all you were doing was just either fighting or settling the claim.
2: You really yeah. need
1: to have an approach of learning from what comes in. I actually found working with unions to be super beneficial in this regard, because they Mm -hmm. had very formal grievance processes, very Mm -hmm. formal process that you had to go through when you disciplined an employee. And once you got to the end point, whether it was a suspension or a firing of someone, the union made you look at your decision carefully. So you were more aware of all the steps you were taking, even if it wasn't a termination, you know, they could file a a claim of discrimination, file a claim of, you know, sexual harassment, and you had to Mm -hmm. walk it through that process. You couldn't escape it. And I found that super beneficial.
0: Let's say that you are in a position or some of the listeners, let's say that they are in a position where they need to balance between protecting the employee and the, the company itself. What would be some questions that you ask yourself so that you're making the right decision on how to balance it? Well, you have to first hear what the complaint is, right? You really mm-hmm. have to
1: vet it for its veracity. But I think the most important thing in approaching that is honesty and transparency. The, mm-hmm. the hard part is, as HR people, I'm sure I'm not alone, you often get people come to you and say, "I want to tell you something, but I don't want you to tell anybody else that I'm telling mm-hmm. you this." Mm. And you can't do that. Yeah, you have to tell the person that I'm ha- I'm I'm happy to be here and to hear you out. But if what you're telling me puts the company at risk,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or presents something that I think pr- has potential unlawful. Impact, then I'm going to have to tell people about it. I will keep it confidential to the extent that that's possible. But you have to remember that the people being accused of something also have a right to Mm -hmm. defend themselves, you know? And I think that that is, you have to really vet the veracity of what the person is telling you. And in order Mm -hmm. to do that, you're going to have to go to other people, you know, to either Talk about what the person is accusing somebody of or, you know, explore the accusation in depth. Mm -hmm. So I think you, you know, you have to protect the organization from secrets, Mm -hmm. secret complaints, because Mm -hmm. you can't have that kind of knowledge as an officer of the organization and not do Mm -hmm. anything about it because you then are putting not only yourself, but the organization at risk. Mm -hmm.
0: If a employer manager goes to HR, I think they always think, oh, it's supposed to be held confidential, but not everything is held conf- confidential. It depends to the extent of the, the, the issue. Right, right. Last question in this section before we talk about asking for a raise and being fired and whatnot. How do you define success?
1: This is an interesting question because I've been pondering this myself lately, as you know. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> because I, I, it's a, and I, I, had actually asked, you know, friends, family, how do you, how do you define this, and, and then has it changed over time?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the critical understanding is that it has changed over time. What I thought was a measure or a presentation of success when I was in my 20s, now, in my 50s, even before I retired, it wasn't that anymore. And there's this sort of wishing that I had had a different, this perspective when I was in my 20s, but then I think, I probably wouldn't have worked as hard. And, you know, there's kind of like, I have this notion of success now because... There's nothing I could do about what already happened. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I have the liberty to, you know, change my definition. But when I was young, when I was, um, you know, thinking when I was really young before college, even it all revolved around money for me. Mm -hmm. It's all about how much money do you have? You know, how much does that represent success because I didn't come from a wealthy household. My household was, we weren't poor, but we didn't have extras, you know? We didn't have money to spend on nice things. We had money to spend on the basic things that we needed. So for me, you know, it was, money solved the problems of Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. having enough, whatever enough was. And then, you know, title never really made a big difference to me, but positional authority did. Like, did I have um that status? And I'm, you know, I'm not a very um like I don't need to acquire things to represent success, so, you know, the nicest car or the nicest wardrobe.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: having money was really important to me. And, you know, now that I do, it's it's not that it's not important because probably if I didn't have it, it would still be important. Okay. You know? Okay. So it's really yeah. difficult to kind of parse out at in this point okay. in my life. Yeah. Um, helping other people, having other people be grateful. Not that I need to be thanked for it. Knowing that other people are grateful or appreciative or find value in my advice or my my work or my skills is success. I do a lot of work now in my in boards that I sit on. I don't get compensated for it. And they really appreciate that. And there's a lot more joy in that than when I was working for money.
0: Have you ever had to ask for a raise? I'm sure you have. How did you ask for a raise?
1: Actually, I, I can't remember actually ever having asked for a race really probably wow. because as I said I ascended very quickly so I always felt like I was in roles that I wasn't qualified for mm-hmm. from like if you looked at the piece of paper if they were going to recruit from the outside you must have 10 years of experience and a master's degree. And I had like five years of experience and didn't have my advanced degree at that point. So I always kind of felt like I didn't like whatever they were going to give me to do a job that I wasn't yet qualified to do, I would take.
0: Okay. In
1: hindsight, that was a mistake.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. And why was that mistake?
1: I think about if I were counseling somebody else, Mm-hmm. I would be telling them to ask for what the job is worth. Not what you are worth doing the job, Okay, but what the job is worth. And I don't think I had that perspective when I was in my 20s and, you know, in my early 30s. I just thought I was being given something I wasn't qualified for. So I had to accept whatever they were going to give me.
0: Can you explain more about like what the job is worth versus what you are worth? Because many times we hear you should get paid what you're worth, um, but you're saying you should get paid what the job is worth. Can you right. go more into details about that? Sure, and I think
1: HR professionals who work in the comp field um, can probably explain this better than I can. But. So generally speaking, a chief HR officer in a certain industry is, you know, has to handle certain things as part of their role. Mm-hmm. And there is data out there that tells you you'll see a range from X to Z for that job. And your organization has a compensation philosophy. We pay to the median, just to make it easy. That's our comp philosophy. We pay to the median. We're not trying to lead. We're not trying to lag. Like. We just want to pay. The median. Well, the median is also built on X number of years of experience in the role, you know, X number of whatever, educational credentials. Some of that is built into the job, but that doesn't make you good at the job necessarily. Mm -hmm. The job is still the job. Mm -hmm. So you you know, you might be within the range and they pay to the median and they'll say to you, Okay, we're gonna pay you at the 30th percentile because you don't yet have enough experience to do this job. Well, why are you giving me this job if I don't?
0: That's true. <laughs> that's absolutely true. If I true.
1: don't have enough experience mm-hmm. to do this job, it's a it's kind of a false narrative to attach to the salary for a job. And you could also come in and say, "Well, I have 15 years of experience." See how this is how the arguments don't work. You could say, "I have 15 years of experience. The job requires 10. You should pay me more." Very mm-hmm. easy to say. The job doesn't require fifteen years of experience; it requires uh-huh. ten. So we're not going to give you any more, yeah. even though you have more. We pay to the median. The same holds true for the under experience. The job is the job.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whether you're, if you're bringing extra value, then that will be proven, right? If you're able to perform the job yeah. in spite of a lack of the credentials that. Are the you know basis of what they think they need to hire? They shouldn't be hiring you mm-hmm. if you can't do the job, or they'll fire you if you can't do the job. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how women have ended up being underpaid. I think that's how you know other marginalized communities have ended up being underpaid because we aren't as likely yeah. to demand
2: mm-hmm.
1: equity as you know or more as you know white men are yeah. are likely to ask for. So. I think the only times I've negotiated is when I've taken on a new position, you know, where I've been able to, you know, make a salary demand for the job and have it met for the most part because I understood what the job was and what I could command and what I was bringing as value to the
0: organization. So if someone wanted to ask for a raise or just negotiate their salary, I guess, in a nutshell, like what, what are some things that they need to think about or ask?
1: They need to know what the job is worth. They need Mm -hmm. to do their market research or talk to Mm -hmm. their human resources professionals. Compensation Mm -hmm. professionals do this for a living. They've got the data. They can, you know, most organizations aren't gonna not share it with you. Mm -hmm. Um, You also have to know what value you bring to the role and how it impacts the organization on an overall basis. Just going in and saying, this was one of the, the things that I would hear often, you know, I work really hard. I'm here, you know, 60 hours a week. That is not an argument for an ant salary increase. That may be an argument that you're not really good at what you do, because it takes you 60 hours to do a 40 hour job, which may or may not be true. But you know, people perceive things. So mm-hmm. it's really about understanding what the job is worth understanding your organization's compensation philosophy, understanding how your organization gives raises, you know, is there a timetable? Is there a you know, one time a year where they actually consider it. Do they do off-cycle mm-hmm. salary increases and making sure yeah. you're prepared for it?
0: Okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll um, link the blog posts that you helped me with um, on your show notes as well so people can get a detailed version of how to actually ask for a raise and negotiate for yourself. Um, on the flip side, have you ever been fired from a job? Several. Several times. <laughs> okay. Okay. What were the reasons why you were fired? Because uh, I think this runs in the family as well. I think uh, Kevin was fired from being late when he worked at Best Buy or something.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, I have my personal perception of the reason why I was fired. Uh, you'd have to talk to the other side to know whether okay. or not that was true. <laughs> mm-hmm. I worked for a catering company in my hometown that, um, staffed the uh, kitchen in the local college Mm -hmm. and they did events like over the summer and I was really annoyed because there were several of us who were downstairs cleaning up the kitchen pots and pans after an event and one of the big things was, you know, we all sat down together to eat whatever was left over from the event yeah. after the event was over. And so they were all upstairs eating, the managers and the, you know, uh-huh. the, the wait staff, and we're all downstairs just cleaning up the pots and pans. So I was really annoyed, and I complained <laughs> to the boss that it was unfair, and they fired me.
0: Ah, because you complained it was unfair. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, so that's um, one of the beginning jobs. What about something like, and later on in your Professional,
1: my professional yeah. life. So I was working for them for quite a while, I think six, five or six years. I took the job because I really loved the woman who was going to be my boss, and I thought I could learn a lot from her. And then she left after like six months. It was my first HR job and I was like Uh I was devastated because I just adored her I wanted to be Mm -hmm. her you know they put somebody in as my boss who I just really didn't have a lot of respect for and she probably knew that I probably wasn't as discreet as I thought I was being and you know I was learning and you know I was also at that point trying to have another baby and you know taking personal time in order to take care of myself and they knew that it wasn't mm-hmm. a secret, um, and this was before the family medical leave was ever in effect. It was like oh, okay. free a lot of you know just protections, and um, we had two recruiters. I oversaw the employment area, and I had just hired a woman who from Cornell ILR, and she was a really um, fantastic recruiter. She was young and new in her career. She was a black woman, and the other recruiter was a white woman. She'd been there for a while, experienced, and um, she decided to resign. The white woman decided to resign, and my boss, who was the head of HR, told me to hire somebody like her, and I interpreted that to mean hire a white woman. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know if that was the right interpretation, but that's Uh what I interpreted. Yeah. And I ended up hiring an Asian-American woman.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then they fired me. And I personally think it was connected to me not doing what she told me to do.
0: Okay. Okay. But
1: she just told me that I wasn't meeting her expectations. Whatever uh. that meant.
0: I hired the woman who was qualified for the job.
1: I mean, that was my personal interpretation. Was that correct? I don't know. The last time okay. I got, quote, unquote, fired.
0: Oh, man, when, there's another topic? There's
1: another one, yes. was <laughs> when I was a chief HR officer, and I I had been there uh-huh. for quite some time, and I just didn't see eye to eye with the CEO. We acknowledged that. We, we worked together, and then we just kind of came to the point where he was like, you know, I don't think this is going to work anymore. I said, yeah, I agree. I don't think this is going to work anymore. Let's negotiate. And at that point, I had hard, they have had a long history of turnover of senior executives, and I had negotiated all of their severance packages, so I was very well aware of what was coming to me, which was awesome, because I had already figured out what I was doing, which is why I went to him and said, I don't think this is really working out anymore. Nice. <laughs> so that was kind of just a... Nice. Uh, and then he was really pissed off about the fact that I had already kind of, I, I beat him <laughs> to the punch.
0: <laughs> so you, you knew what kind of service package that you wanted out of that.
1: Yeah. And I um, had already, you know, lined up the next the next phase of my career at that point. So
0: perfect. <laughs> yeah. So so for the people listening who you know might get fired one day or in retrospect already got fired, um, what is a bit of advice that you would give to people who are on the chopping block, who are, you know, in the office with HR and their management and being let go? Um, any advice on what they can do
1: yeah don't sign any paperwork that day they can't make you Uh uh-huh
0: because sometimes uh, they're gonna like force you hey just sign this this. we'll give you a severance package yeah you helped me with that because I got fired before as well good (laughs) thing I didn't sign anything Uh, but yeah what are some like questions or things that you should think about before taking any action
1: yeah I think the most important thing is to just be quiet you know, Mm -hmm. because you're emotional at that point, you're very, very emotional and likely not to ask the right questions or say things that you, you, you know, haven't fully formed in your mind yet. Mm
2: -hmm. Don't
1: sign anything. Just, you know, let them say what they want to say. Mm -hmm. Um, if you have clarifying questions about the reason why you're being terminated, ask those questions, but just realize that it's a very emotional time and that you're not really going to be thinking that clearly. It's very stressful. Mm -hmm. I think, and, and then, you know, find somebody if you, if you are being offered a severance package, um, and if you're in human resources, you might already have a good idea of what other people have gotten, which is great. But if you don't mm-hmm. talk to somebody who might be able to help you, you know, you can yeah. you can talk to a lawyer that, that specializes in this kind of stuff. If you think that that's helpful, um, you know, I think it's if you are getting a severance package, you are going to be asked to waive all of your rights to mm-hmm. bring a claim against your employer. Those are important things to let go. Uh, Mm -hmm. and you don't want to do that without really thinking through whether or not you think you have a claim against the employer. It's hard to win claims against employers. It's very hard. I'm not going to, you know, make anyone believe that, oh, I just sue your employer and you'll get 10, you know, a million dollars That doesn't Mm -hmm. happen. You know, a lot of these lawsuits that do end up getting judgments. You read the big judgment in the newspaper and then the judge changed the amount later on and you don't read about that in the newspaper. It's very uh, limited what employers can be held responsible for um, mm-hmm. so a lot of times it's just not worth the, the aggravation and the pain if you can approach it from a negotiation perspective instead of a threat perspective okay and I think the most important thing to think to to know is that you and I are evidence of it happens to the best of
0: us-hmm yeah
1: absolutely and I think you know don't let it get you down man it couldn't have been better for my career in the long run Mm
2: -hmm. and you don't realize that at the time
1: you know you're just upset you're feeling like you know somehow you're bad you know you're not good at your and I felt that for a while especially the first time not the Norma Ray one where I complained it wasn't fair but (laughs) my first firing I really felt for quite a while I was like wow I must really suck at this but then looking back you know they promoted me two or three times before they fired me so I Mm couldn't have been that bad and it turns out I was better than all of them because look where i am right
0: (laughs) absolutely yeah it's hard to not take it personally when you get fired because you're like am i not competent enough am i not good enough but sometimes it's just the values don't match or you know just there's so many other reasons um many times it becomes a blessing in disguise hi everyone i wanted to take a quick break to tell you a little bit more about feed learning Feed Learning is a learning and organizational development firm that helps build better teams by offering professional development training courses and also one-on-one coaching. We have a lot of great courses this year, such as a new management training program, communicating with empathy, and mitigating unconscious bias. To learn more about us, check us out at feedlearning.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram to get free career development resources. Now back to the show with Aaron. How would you describe yourself in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, generation? I'm a white female
1: and I'm at the tail end of the baby boomer generation, which I don't okay. really like being in the baby boomer generation, but why? I don't know. Everybody's older than me, I think, <laughs> you know, the whole thing, yeah, boomer, mm-hmm.
0: I'm like, yeah, ah. okay. <laughs> I don't think like that do uh, I no yeah. no you don't you're pretty hip <laughs> you're a hip grandma <laughs> um do you feel that stereotypes have been placed at you at work I mean there are a lot of women in
1: human resources and you know but there weren't as many women at the c-suite you know um mm-hmm. but HR usually was one of the roles that could be held by women but I looked around a lot in my field and when I was coming up that a lot of the department employees were female but the lead the chief h r officer tended to be male then. I don't think that's so much the case anymore, but I also was stereotyped because I was so young, yeah, and that okay. really got in the way of me being taken at my at face value. I really had to prove myself, but you know after a while, after a couple of wins, it didn't get in the way as much anymore
0: So tell me uh, a little bit more about like being young. Um, And the, the, how that impacted your career negatively or positively? I think it didn't,
1: it didn't end up impacting me negatively from the perspective of getting opportunity. Um, You know, I was afforded opportunity, I earned it, and I was given the opportunity to advance in my career. But then when I, I remember once I went up to the hospital unit to meet with, uh, just to meet people and. Uh, shake some hands, and there was a union representative on the floor, and I went up to her and I introduced myself as the new, you know, director of employee and labor relations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And she she was the union rep, the shop steward for the for the unit. She looked at me. She goes, "What, girl? I thought you would be some old white woman with a cane walking up here." <laughs> Never forgot that I was, this, you know, I was 32, I think, at the time. Yeah. And, and she, or no, it was I was the VP. That was when I was the VP, and she she addressed me like that. So, oh my goodness, what do people think I am? But you know, so it was a little bit of testing
2: mm-hmm. my
1: metal, you know, because I was so young, and it was my, you know, I don't think people ha- thought I had the chops for the job, but they they soon learned otherwise so i think you know it you have to prove yourself when you present youthful in a role that was usually occupied by someone who was in the latter part of their career
0: yeah yeah how how do you get over that uh, lack of confidence especially if you're young but you're in a higher level role is it just keep on pushing proving yourself or is there any tips there I think
1: it's important to reflect mm-hmm. on your what you have accomplished. I think okay, yeah. you know oftentimes we're just so busy looking to at the next thing that needs to get done. We don't take the time mm-hmm. to. I remember someone who I worked with um, I had learned that you know big projects don't get done all at once, <laughs> as we all know, but learning how to incrementally get them done over a long period of time and being patient with that. Some people, you know, one person said to me, oh, Holy cow, we accomplished so much in the last year. And I was feeling like there's so much left to do.
0: Uh, we haven't accomplished uh-huh.
1: anything because mm-hmm. there's so much left to do. But in hindsight, that was a lot. Change is not easy. People don't always adapt well to change. And giving yourself credit for the wins is more important than taking yourself to task for the losses. There's a lot to be learned from the losses but there's a lot to be gained from the wins and we don't reflect on that enough we need to really think about how hard we work to accomplish what we accomplish and give ourselves credit for that that builds self-confidence and and i think it's critically important to um to women especially to you know real acknowledge the fact that we We balance a lot in our lives we balance you know perceptions that other people have of us the last perception we should be thinking negatively of is the one we hold of ourselves
0: yeah yeah i like how you you said to basically not forget the accomplishments because that's true sometimes i'm thinking like okay i gotta do this i gotta do that i gotta do that oh man did i build my business or what but Looking it back in hindsight of all the things that I accomplished, it's a long list of things. Yeah. So I think we could all do that to build our confidence. So let's talk about balancing work and family. You were probably in like the prime time of your career while you were even start while you were starting a family as well. So how did you go about balancing your career and family life?
1: It wasn't easy. <laughs> i actually um I had my first child your husband when i was 21 years old i was yeah. still i was still in college i had a, between my junior and senior year um which was very fortunate because i had a friend who you know i was able to be home most of the time classes in college really took up very little time it was all the other work right which is even mm-hmm. easier to do now, given you know the resources that are available that weren't when I was in, in the you know mid eighties when I was in
0: college. Um, but so were you? Were you working and going to school and had a kid? No, just or finishing you- my last year of college. Oh, okay, okay. And
1: Kevin's okay, and first had year had of kids. life.
0: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> got
1: it. And then we up and moved to New York City um, with no jobs, <laughs> believe it or not, just figured we'd figure it out
2: yeah. yeah
1: I think one of the things that was really helpful is that um Kev's dad my husband at the time uh, was very good about you know being there and being supportive and and mm-hmm. we were able to finagle our work lives so that you know my first job I actually worked at night I worked like two in the afternoon until 10 at night and he worked mm. during the day and then we eventually you know switched to when the the twins my twins were born seven years later um, where I worked during the day and he worked at night so for the first oh, wow. three years of their lives one of us was always home but that was the nature of our relationship which was really in the nature of our work so it was very unusual we lived in New York City and my family isn't from here they're from you know 250 miles away and John's family was from England, so that wasn't even a consideration. Yeah. So we didn't have family. And most of my friends were young and, you know, hanging out and doing stuff. And I think, you know, that that helped that we were able to, you know, switch it up a bit and then, Mm -hmm. you know, um, either find, you know, good preschool or someone to come in and, and take care of them. But that was an expense. You know, it was definitely a drain on on our family resources Um, I think the hardest thing for me and I think that this is better now is that I really felt very much like when I was raising my family and having serious ambitions about my career is I I couldn't talk about my family I couldn't talk about being a mom Mm -hmm. like that would be perceived as being potentially a
2: detractor
1: to my professional ambitions, like I can't seriously want to be a CEO or, you know, a high level professional, because I had three kids at home, which was ridiculous. But that's the perception that was in the workforce. So, you know, when I had to take a day off, because I wanted to go watch my kids, you know, play or take my kids to the doctor, it was perceived negatively about me putting my family ahead of my job. Whereas if a man did it, it would be perceived as like, oh, isn't he a great dad yeah. because he's taking time off to go take care of his family. It's just I don't know if it's still as much like that anymore, um, but it was definitely an inhibitor for me to feel really good about my – in, in hindsight, I wouldn't do it now because I just feel like it, it's wrong to pretend like that isn't the most mm-hmm. important thing in your life because it was. Mm-hmm. And you know it was hard. Um, you've got to think about these things and what yeah. resources you have available to you to be able to feel like you can put your time and your focus in your work when work calls, and your time and your focus in your family when family calls. And mm-hmm. it's hard. To there is no, in my in my world view, there is no such thing as balance.
0: Yeah, you just it's gotta just find just yeah, it's just life, right? It's just life, and it seems like you had that you had that struggle on that trade off of you want to grow in your career, both at the same time, you want to raise a family, but in that environment when you were working, it seemed like if you spoke anything about raising a family but also wanting to grow in your career, it was kind of looked down upon. Yeah, is that what you were saying? Yeah, I that felt was-
1: that. I don't know if that was true. That was my perception. I know uh, one in my uh, consulting career when it was run by um the ceo at one point i got so mm-hmm. annoyed because every time a woman would get pregnant in our firm he'd say better prepare for her to leave and that would be like
0: ah uh,
1: so yeah. anytime uh, another you know a man's wife mm-hmm. got pregnant there was never any like yeah. oh better be prepared for him to leave so i just mm-hmm. got really annoyed and i did the i did the data and i showed him you know the last eight women who worked here only one of eight yeah. Left the organization because she had children, and that's because she had oh, twins, wow. and she had to move closer to home for for mm-hmm. childcare reasons. And I, and he, and the three other senior executives were all men. I was the only senior executive who was a woman. They all had mm-hmm. families, but all three of their wives opted to stay at home and raise the children. They did yeah. not work. I said, just because you're in that situation and you're in that mm-hmm. situation, you're in situation, doesn't mean that every woman wants to stay home and raise her family.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And absolutely.
1: he stopped. He stopped saying that after that.
0: Okay, so you shut it down. Shut it down. Shut it down. Right then and there. The data tells the story. Absolutely. So there's that trade off that that women have to face uh, in, in terms of career. It's the same thing as a uh, hearing the term working mom, but you never hear the term working, working dad. dad. Yeah. Right? What advice would you give to parents or sooner be parents who are also working at the same time?
1: No job is worth sacrificing your family.
2: Mm. Mm. There
1: is no way you could ever convince me that, in the end, you're going to care that much about your job. Yeah. To the extent that you care more about that than the family that you have, mm-hmm. um, I don't think any. I don't think anyone I've ever worked for is going to be there when I'm dying.
2: <laughs> and I know that seems yeah, really
1: dramatic to that's say true. that. Uh-huh. But, you know, I have had the benefit of being now close to my sixth decade of life. And as much as I cared about my professional life, I wanted to achieve certain things in my career. Maybe it's the benefit of hindsight. Maybe it's just, you know, the benefit of age and wisdom. It's like it doesn't really matter that much. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's great. It's important to feel good about work that you do. Yeah. I don't know about all this passion stuff. You know, you got to find your passion and try to make it your job. Just find a job that you like, which is really, do you like the people you work with? Or if you're an entrepreneur, you know, like you, do you love like the clients that you get to choose to work with i mean Mm -hmm. it it really that matters more Is is the organization aligned with the values of the things that are really important to you in your life can you find somewhere like that to work and then make the most of it but don't sacrifice the things that actually matter in life for things that at the end of the day you Mm -hmm. will not really consider when I mean when I'm sitting in the nursing home I'm going to be replaying you know things in my mind
0: we're not going to put you (laughs) in a nursing home unless you want one (laughs) you're staying with us we're going to have we're an in-law unit for you and everything
1: (laughs) just a a figure of speech in my later years as I'm contemplating my life Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm going to be replaying Moments yeah. where I sat across the bargaining table and negotiated with the union, you Absolutely. know, or yeah. convinced the chief executive officer to mm-hmm. hire a certain person for a role. Yeah. I will probably yeah. think about the people who I hired who were really successful, whose careers I helped, you know, people who I met along the way who had an impact on my career, who I have stayed friends with. But, mm-hmm. Or I'm going to be thinking about the great trips I took or mm-hmm. the day I spent in the park with my granddaughter.
2: <laughs> or, you
1: know, yeah. I, I think about that in the wholeness of your life. What's really important? And I know it sounds very plat, like a platitude to say that, but there's a reason why it's like that.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Kevin and I had this talk several times and with me, with my business and like I'm doing it mostly part time. But I have the luxury of moving back to New York, being close to you so you can watch Ava as, as well so I can do some work. But we talked about this to where like no job is important enough. Um, it's always family first. And it's not like we're going to look back and be like, oh, man, I wish I put more hours to my job. It's more of I wish I spent more time with my family because we're not going to get this time back when our our kids are like toddler age. So um, that's why we're deciding to focus more on that family side and that career ambition. As long as we have a good, stable job that can pay the bills and we can have some savings and, you know, enjoy life, that's more important than Chasing the money. Um, well, and I think we're moment. in
1: yeah. very privileged positions to be able to say yeah. that too, because there are an awful lot of people, especially single parents, who
2: mm-hmm. don't have
1: the luxury. You know, who are struggling. This past year has been so difficult for women, especially mm-hmm. single. I could not imagine the struggle of having a school-age child
0: mm-hmm. and a
1: full-time job. Yeah. You know, it just, I just can't even imagine that. It's so hard. But if you're in the, you know, think about that too. When you have friends who maybe aren't as privileged as you are or as fortunate Mm -hmm. as you are to think about, you know, is there something I could do to let them Mm -hmm. have an hour to themselves?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Give. Absolutely. Uh, Lightning route and then career advice. So these next questions, just quick, no right or wrong answer. What was your very first job and how old were you? Paper route, age 12. What did you want to be when you grew up?
1: First, I wanted to be a heart surgeon and then a brain surgeon. And then I wanted to do something in genetics. What college did you go to? Cornell University School of Industrial Labor Relations and Fordham School of Law.
0: Were you considered the smart kid in class?
1: I was definitely one of the smart kids in class, but it really wasn't Mm. a very high bar. Because I was <laughs> because. grew up in a very small town, and mm. you know, I mean, actually, there were quite a few kids in our class, but I didn't really have to work that hard for it, which okay. was difficult when I got to college and everybody else was the smart kid in class. Uh, it
0: was okay, hard. what did your parents do for work?
1: My dad was a chemical operator, so uh, mm-hmm. someone who mixed chemicals for products. My mom didn't work while well, we were young. We have I mm-hmm. have five siblings. And the first mm-hmm. five of us were born within the six years. So there were a lot of babies <laughs> to take care of. Yeah. And But then when my youngest sister went to school, she went back to work and she ultimately worked in uh, banking as a teller and a manager.
0: Okay. What did your parents want you to be?
1: You know, I have no idea.
0: I oh, had no okay. idea if they wanted me to
1: be anything specific. But I do remember my mom commenting at one time you know, late in life, all of her children had become... Professionals, And she said, why couldn't I have children who were
0: electricians mm-hmm.
1: and you
0: know, car mechanics? Why is everybody yeah. a professional? <laughs> if money wasn't an issue and you could be anything you wanted to be, what would it be?
1: I probably would have been a writer. Writing about what? Writing about things that I thought were interesting or important. But I thought writers were poor. So I wasn't going to do that. So, are
0: you, are you saying your daughter is poor? she's... Well, way. journalism journalism doesn't
1: pay well, unfortunately. One of the most important professions we have in this country and the industry mm-hmm. is being decimated, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Favorite thing to eat? Anything I don't have to make. Okay. <laughs> um, this is a question from one of our uh, listeners. Um, who is your favorite child and why is it Kevin?
1: <laughs> My favorite grandchild is Ava
0: okay she's
1: the only one I have right now
0: okay um what do you want to name your next granddaughter
1: oh well I'm not gonna say that because I, it's not my choice
0: come on I need help choosing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay last question what do you want to learn how to do
1: I'm really into fungi right now or fungi however you say that I'm so okay. interested in mushrooms and mycology uh-huh. I, I wish that I could go back and become a mycologist. It's so fascinating to me. Oh. But I'm really a student of the human mind, of everything. If you look at my like podcasts of my, you know, I'm a meditator, I'm mm-hmm. very, very interested in how, what about what consciousness is and
2: mm-hmm.
1: how our minds work, why people do the things they do. That absolutely okay. fascinates me. I will study that till the day I die.
0: Okay, let's end it with career advice. What is your advice for someone who wants to be bolder and speak their minds? Because this is something I I admire about you and your son.
1: You have to challenge your own comfort level. Like, we are very Mm -hmm. easy to just sort of get, feel like we have to stay at that place, right? And Mm -hmm. it's hard to speak your mind, it's hard to contradict other people. It's not. It, it's not ever easy. Most people avoid conflict for that reason because it's, it's mm-hmm. not easy. But conflict isn't a negative. Like there's associated, with, you know, negativity around conflict. Mm-hmm. Conflict is where we learn. Conflict is the yeah. gap between what you know and what I know. Somewhere in there, we're going to learn from each other. Conflict is always productive if it's managed correctly. If you're just yelling yeah. at each other, you know that's not conflict. That's war. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> that's like battle. Yeah. But I think. From my perspective, what I've always has been the backdrop to almost everything that I've, you know, that I say or do is like, what do I have to lose?
2: Mm-hmm. What's the
1: downside of saying what I'm thinking? Like, it's yeah. not, off. I'm not just saying things for the sake of saying things. You know, I'm not trying to be controversial. It's not how I roll. What I'm saying is something I think or believe in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we could get held back by thinking what we're saying is wrong or stupid or ill-informed. This calling people out is mm-hmm. not helpful. But calling people in and inviting them to a discussion about something that you want to learn about together is super mm-hmm. helpful. Yeah. But to be able to really assess what do I have to lose by saying what I want to say versus mm-hmm. what do I have to lose by keeping my mouth shut. Almost yeah. always... You have more to lose by keeping your mouth shut.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a lot about just reframing that mindset before going into that conversation because yeah. sometimes when you're thinking it in a negative perspective of oh, I want to avoid this conflict, it's just going to yeah. prevent you from even starting that conversation. And I
1: think we also have these perceptions that if we were to turn it around and be advising, this is like negotiating for a raise. How would I negotiate for a raise? I'd be I'd pretend I was negotiating for somebody else because it's so mm-hmm. much easier. Yeah. to think about it in terms of other people like the things we say to ourselves that negative self talk
2: mm-hmm. really
1: saying would I ever say that to my best friend like that's horrible what I what we mm-hmm. say to ourselves sometimes it's like yeah you know or, and to say if I were having a conversation with somebody and they were reluctant to share something with me because of the way that they were they would think that I would think about them that doesn't happen People aren't Mm -hmm. like that. They're not waiting. I mean, maybe there are some people, you know, 2% of the population, who are just waiting for you to say something stupid so that they can make you look like an idiot. Mm -hmm. Most people aren't like that. Most people are just going to help you understand things more. And I've been super fortunate in my career, especially when I owned my business, and my business partner and I were so, we trusted each other so much, and we learned so much from each other. and We leaned on Mm -hmm. each other's best assets, best knowledge base to really grow our business that, you know, you're going to find yourself, you're going to find your people by having spoken your mind Mm
0: -hmm. rather than
1: keeping your mouth shut. You know, you don't find your people by being quiet.
0: Absolutely. Uh, So you, you ended up purchasing a business and selling it. Yep. Uh, What is your advice for HR professionals who want to either start their own business or purchase a business and own a business themselves? Any advice
1: there? Well, I think being a business owner is the best thing ever because you
0: don't have to
1: have bosses telling you what to do. <laughs> yep. That's
0: why I do it.
1: <laughs> yep. Um, but you have to really know the market. You know, you mm-hmm. and don't try to be everything to everybody. I think that's the uh, that's like the death knell for entrepreneurs is and it could have been for our business too. We were in the we we did something that a lot of other firms did, but we focused mm-hmm. in one specific industry because we knew that healthcare industry inside and out, nobody could speak the language like us. We ended mm-hmm. up taking business from the largest firms in the country because nice. we spoke hospital. And that's what mm-hmm. got our business acquired at the end because we took business from them. And they were like, mm-hmm. who's this pipsqueak business that keeps stealing our, our clients away? Yeah. And they realized they just didn't have, they they couldn't grow the business that mm-hmm. we had. They could only acquire it. So they made us a really great offer. But we could have easily gone down the path of wanting to pursue manufacturing or financial services or higher education
0: mm-hmm. because
1: the shiny new nickel is always really appealing, right? But if yeah. you stick to what you know best, whether it's, uh you know talent management or learning and development or employee benefits or you stick to the tech industry or you know a specific industry you're mm-hmm. better served than trying to be everything to everyone i think that's mm-hmm. a really important entrepreneurial lesson and and also don't don't do things when you could hire somebody who's smarter than you to do them yeah you know don't try to do everything to you know, if you've outlived what you bring to your company, bring somebody else mm-hmm. in to do that for the company.
0: Okay, all right, Mom, Erin, Mama Erin, I'm not sure what to call you <laughs> on a, in a more professional <laughs> setting. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your enlightenment and sharing this your experience. Um, it's always nice to learn more about you. Or, you know, before kevin time uh, <laughs> my so. life was
1: short before kevin i only had 21 years <laughs> before he had it.
2: <laughs> so a lot true. of it
1: has been with kevin and i'm sure he'd have other things to say about our experience yeah. together but <laughs> i hope i think i did pretty well because okay. he's a pretty awesome my kids are very awesome yeah. i love them all yeah. but thanks for having me this has been fun yeah, i hope it was helpful for your audience
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Helpful for my audience and also helpful for your kids to learn more a little bit about you too. (laughs) So that wraps the show and also the season. Thanks so much again for listening to the Feed Learning People podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and follow us on LinkedIn for more career development resources or on Instagram for behind the scenes work. See you later. Bye.